Hey, listeners, before we get to this episode of Problem Solvers, here is a word from our sponsor. This episode of Problem Solvers is being presented by State Farm. Being a small business owner can be so fulfilling, rewarding, and let's be honest, a little scary from time to time. Doing your own thing and being your own boss is great, but sometimes it can make you feel like you are all alone, especially when things aren't going great. Well, the folks at State Farm want you to know that you are not alone. State Farm has thousands of agents who are small business owners too, so they know what it takes to protect everything you've worked so hard for. State Farm has an assortment of insurance policies for small businesses that can be tailored to your needs. So whether you're a hairstylist, an electrician, or a florist, State Farm agents are ready to help. Learn more and find an agent today at statefarm.com slash small business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And now, on with the show. From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. We are in a moment of great change, and that change has surely come to you. Perhaps you've been forced to adapt to the unpredictable, or you've pivoted or released a new product or service. I'm going to guess that in some way, you feel like these changes have been equal parts success and failure. That something is working very well, but you aren't fully happy or satisfied. Maybe a small wellspring of panic is brewing. Why? I will tell you my theory. It's because you're 99% there, and that last 1% hurts the most. This is like hiking a mountain with a pebble in your shoe. It doesn't matter if your legs are strong enough to conquer the incline or if your shoes grip the earth tightly enough, because the tiniest, most infinitesimal part of that rock formation, if that ends up in your heel, well, it can bring you to a halt. You must stop, take off your shoe, and locate that tiny part. Sometimes the most impactful part of a journey is also the smallest part. So how can you locate it and how can you make it better? To start, you need to understand what I call the 99% there problem. It's something that I write about in my new book, Build for Tomorrow, which comes out very soon. It comes out September 6th, and I would really love if you picked it up because I think that Build for Tomorrow can help you navigate any big change that's coming your way. If you feel like you're grappling with some big life or career change now, if you're navigating some big change, if your company is going through some change, this is the book that can help guide you. I have spent years researching it, talking to the smartest entrepreneurs and identifying what it is that drives them to be so adaptable and how that leads to success and how anybody can find opportunity in change, how you, in fact, can find new opportunities before anyone else does. So today on Problem Solvers, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a chapter of the book to you. It is about what I call the 99% there problem. And I hope that it really helps you frame any moment of change Well, a little differently, that maybe when you feel like something is a total disaster or completely overwhelming, that really, really what you need to do is find out why it's 
1% wrong. I will also give you some great stories of how this applies to problems, like <laughs> a really amusing problem from a couple hundred years ago, and also a very interesting, more modern technological problem, and then also offer a really valuable framework for how to evaluate any kind of change and whether you see an opportunity that other people don't. And that's going to come from Jim McKelvey, one of the co-founders of Square. So buckle up. It is on this episode of Problem Solvers, an excerpt from my book, Build for Tomorrow, coming up after the break. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa, a network working for everyone. All right, we're back. And now let's pick up with the 99% Their Problem, a chapter from Build for Tomorrow, my new book. When Miley Cyrus twerked at the 2013 MTV Video Music Awards, prudes were aghast. We're on a moral downward spiral, conservative radio host Laura Ingram told her listeners at the time. What you're hearing is the end of culture. But in truth, Ingram was just echoing a centuries-old complaint. A new dance reaches mainstream culture, and traditionalists use it as a stand-in for everything they find objectionable about their own fading relevance. Famously happened with jazz and rock and roll, but the mother of all dance scandals, and arguably the very first true dance-inspired crisis, was the waltz. In the early 1800s, European society was absolutely scandalized by the waltz. London's The Times, for example, called it an obscene display for prostitutes and adulteresses. The British romantic poet Lord Byron wrote a nearly 2,000-word poem about how much he hated the dance. A society man named Theodore Hook, who, on a completely unrelated note, is credited as the inventor of the picture postcard, despised the waltz so much that he got into a duel over it with a waltz-loving military general. They each shot once and called it a day. Anti-waltzers at the time talked a lot about how unhealthy the dance was and how the human body wasn't made to endure all that spinning. A 19th century doctor claimed that habitual dancing would take years off your life, calculating that the average lifespan for a waltzer was 37 years for a man and 25 years for a woman. In one way, this was nothing new. Victorian-era doctors had also warned that novels might make women infertile, and in the 1800s, doctors warned of a medical condition called bicycle face. It was a permanent disfigurement caused by the strain of attempting to keep the bicycle balanced. But intriguingly, the doctors of the late 1800s were correct about the waltz. It actually was bad for people's health. The doctors were just wrong about why. Doctors noted that after waltzing, people fell ill. 
Dancers were reported to have developed bronchitis and even pneumonia after waltzing. This led some doctors to blame the dance itself as the cause, says Mark Knowles, author of the book The Wicked Waltz and Other Scandalous Dances, who was on the faculty of the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Therefore, doctors believed the dance itself was the problem. Our bodies were not built to withstand that much spinning or touching. But here's what those doctors didn't consider, according to Knowles. The dance happened in a ballroom with no ventilation because buildings back then weren't designed for good airflow. Things were even worse in the winter when windows and doors were closed. Candles or gaslights would illuminate the room, which poured noxious chemicals into the air, and the floor was sometimes lined with a big piece of linen called a crash cloth, which enabled dancers to glide more easily But when dancers traversed them, their feet released lint from the cloth that filled the air with minute linen particles. When those were inhaled, they could cause serious problems in the lungs. And on top of all that, proper women's attire at the time called for petticoats, which could be heavy and tightly laced corsets that made breathing difficult. In short, the pure act of waltzing was perfectly healthy. It was 99% there. But many things around the waltz were insane and deadly. That 1% needed to be solved before the waltz was 100% enjoyable. Now let's fast forward a few centuries and look at a more modern cause for safety concern, electric scooters. If you've visited a major city recently, you've surely seen these things. They're made by companies such as Lime and Bird, and the first time you come upon one, you think it's a mistake. Here's this little device uh, left unaccompanied on a sidewalk available to anyone, but that is its most compelling feature. To locate a Lime scooter, for example, just open Lime's app and it'll show you where all available scooters are on a map. When you approach one and scan its QR code, the wheels unlock. Just turn the handle and zip away, fueled by an electric-powered engine that can move between 15 to 20 miles per hour. In New York City, for example, you'll be charged $1 to unlock the scooter and then 30 cents per minute. When you're done, just leave it at a bike rack or a sidewalk furniture zone. Someone else will find it soon. The scooters started appearing in cities around 2017 and were welcomed with hostility. The Philadelphia Inquirer summed it up in this headline, electric scooters have brought chaos and outrage in cities across the country. People treated these devices as a wildly new intrusion onto city streets, which historically speaking, they are not. The first motorized scooters hit the streets around 1916 and were a largely welcome addition. That year, the New York City Sun said scooters have the disposition of a Bronco and the guile of an eel, which is a lastingly accurate description. But times are different. In 1916, roads were awash in people, commerce, and every newfangled machine on wheels. Today, roads are are almost entirely reserved for cars, which means scooters don't feel like they belong. Soon after the scooters were introduced in American cities in 2017, the narrative turned to safety. Scooters, many people said, were too dangerous. Cities started threatening to ban them. This too has a long history. In 1880, bicycles were banned from Central Park because the park commissioners thought they were a dangerous nuisance. And yet, just like with doctors and the waltz, there is an unfortunate truth to the safety concerns about electric scooters. People have crashed and even died while riding them, though multiple studies have found them to be no more dangerous than other transportation modes. So in one way, people's safety concerns seem reasonable. They see people being harmed on the scooters and conclude that the scooter is the problem. But what if the scooter is not the problem? And what if the problem is actually quite solvable? 
Lime dug into its data on accidents in the U.S., seeking to understand what is happening. It looked at incident reports related to all rides for one calendar year, starting on March 1st, 2019, which consisted of roughly 38 million scooter trips. It found that 99.985% of trips involved no safety incidents. Of the trips with incidents, 93% of them were minor scrapes or cuts that required no medical attention. This left 0.0011% of all trips assessed that required medical attention, hospitalization, or worse. Lyme then dug into that group seeking patterns. It found that less experienced riders made up the majority of these reported accidents, and 36% of incidents occur during a rider's first five trips. With this insight, Lime launched a course program called First Ride in cities around the world. That way, people could take their first rides in controlled environments and therefore safely move through the window when the most serious accidents occur. Now, let's step back and look at these two very different situations, the waltz and the scooter. Both brought changes to people's culture and environment, and both were first adopted by young people. Both were believed to cause bodily harm, and those concerns were validated by real people who experienced real harm. As a result, both were targeted for elimination. People of the 1800s wanted to stop the waltz entirely, and people of the late 2010s aimed to take scooters off the street. But after a closer examination, the waltz and the scooter are found to be statistically healthy activities. They are not inherently dangerous. Instead, the problem exists around the waltz and around the scooter. It had to do with the environment that the waltz and the scooter were experienced in, the 1% problem in 99% greatness. Those problems were solvable and would result in broader adoption of change. The waltz would transition from a scandalous dance for kids into a classic dance for all. The scooter would go from a terrifying new obstacle to a common option for urban transportation. These two stories helped me identify the 99% their problem. If we want to find the real opportunity in something new and potentially scary, we cannot focus on the new thing itself. We must look in the margins around that thing, making adjustments in the places where nobody else is looking so that we can transform something from new and scary into can't live without. And how can we do that in our own lives? To find out, I decided to ask someone who transformed millions of small businesses and reshaped the way commerce happens. His name is Jim McKelvey, and he's the co-founder of Square. I asked him what he thought of my theory. It's good, perhaps great, he replied, but it depends on if someone can use this for a competitive advantage or not. Then he explained, with two words, how to do exactly that. Coming up after the break. If you're a business leader, there are things you love doing, like building great things and serving people. And then there are the things you hate doing, like inbox management and project follow-ups. Did you know that delegating those tasks could help you reclaim an average of 15 hours every week? It is time to focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. Belay has been helping busy leaders do exactly that. They're helping with their staffing solutions. They've been doing it for over a decade. Belay intentionally pairs clients with virtual assistants, accounting, and more. Great leaders don't do anything alone. You have to find the support you need to delegate the details, and you can do that with Belay. So get started now. Just text SOLVE to the number 55123 to get $300 off your startup fee for a virtual assistant when you schedule a call before August 31st. That's SOLVE, S-O-L-V-E, to 55123 to save $300 and reclaim 15 hours every week. First, 
Here's what you need to know about Jim McKelvey. In 2009, he partnered with a friend named Jack Dorsey to introduce a tiny object called the Square Reader. It's that roughly inch-long credit card reader that plugs into a handheld device such as an iPhone or iPad and transforms it into a digital cash register. This sounds simple and small, but it was transformative. Many small businesses couldn't accept credit cards before this. The process was simply too cumbersome and expensive for them. But now everything, from food trucks to farmers market stands, could take a card. Business has fun fundamentally changed because of it. Maybe you've swiped your card through a square reader and thought, that's so easy. Competitors in the payment industry saw it and they thought, that's so easy to knock off. Then they tried and often failed. People thought that the secret to Square's success was building a card reader that plugged into the headset jack, McKelvey told me. But really, it was the other 14 things in our innovation stack. An innovation stack is a model that defines the different types of possible innovations within an organization and a way of thinking about building new things. The idea is that innovations are stacked on top of one another, each working in tandem to support the other. It is also the title of McKelvey's book, the innovation stack. A credit card reader, for example, isn't very useful without figuring out how to lower the processing fees for small businesses, which is the reason so many entrepreneurs didn't take credit cards, or without completely new and innovative relationships with credit card companies. Square addressed all of that. Square's competitors did not. As a result, McKelvey says, most of our competitors headed down a dead-end path designing hardware, while the real opportunity lay elsewhere. To McKelvey, this is a fundamental lesson that goes beyond business. It's about remembering that what you see isn't all there is. Or to keep with the theme of my theory, you can't confuse the 99% for the 100%. The reasons things look easy is often ignorance, he told me. Watching a master chef poach an egg makes it look easy. Only after you have a kitchen full of gelatinous slime will you appreciate how difficult the process truly is. I've watched entire companies get funded based on an assumption that something is easy that is actually difficult. Humans love to think they understand. Given all that, I asked McKelvey how a person can identify something new and then truly maximize it. How can they get to 100% themselves? Doing one thing causes another problem, but often in a surprising way, he said. To illustrate his point, he reframed the stories of the scooter and the waltzing that I had shared with him. People assume dancing is unsafe, but really it's the ballrooms. People assume the scooters are unsafe, but really it's the riders. Look for that phrase, but really, and you will find a competitive advantage. Now, if you were to rewind just a few minutes in this podcast episode, well, you'd hear McKelvey use that exact phrase when describing Square. Here it is again. He said, people thought the secret to Square's success was building a card reader that plugged into the headset jack, he said, but really it was the other 14 things in our innovation stack. When McKelvey meets with innovators, he loves asking them this, tell me something nobody else knows about your innovation stack. It's a kind of quiz. If someone has created something truly new and understands its exact purpose in the world and how it's measurably different and better than everything else, then they will have a dozen answers to this question. Posers spit platitudes while real entrepreneurs know firsthand why things happen in non-obvious ways, McKelvey said. His advice to anyone trying to answer that question or to just find the value in new things? Look for the but reallys, he says. These simple words may in fact be the difference between adapting and truly thriving. Want to get to a place where you truly, fully appreciate something new and maximize the opportunity in changing times? 
make a list of but reallys. Write down at least three of them, at which point you'll have thought so deeply about the subject that you'll probably have many more. Challenge yourself to recognize not just what this new experience is good for or what its potential is, but what it might be missing as well. Imagine saying to yourself, I may be dissatisfied with my job, but really, I'm being pushed to better identify what I love and how to pursue it. I may need to move to a different city, but really, I'm now finding a place that fulfills needs I didn't have before. I may have just taken on a terrifying new project, but really, I'm learning a skill set that will be valuable later. Once you know your but really, you can foster it. You can solve the small problems, which in turn can solve the big ones. We must innovate inside the margins of our own lives. We are 99% there. That can be a problem or it can be an opportunity. It means there's only 1% left to go. Again, that was an excerpt from my new book, Build for Tomorrow. It is out September 6th, and I would just adore it if you picked up a copy. I think it can be really useful to you. You can find it now. You do not have to wait until September 6th if you're hearing this beforehand. You can buy it now wherever you find books. Go to Amazon, search for Build for Tomorrow, or you can go to jasonpfeiffer.com slash book, and you can find it there. Again, the book is called Build for Tomorrow. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.